Hello, Silvertown. Welcome to Silvertown Podcast. Let's jump on that silver train and ride. Ride through the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. And today, it's my honor and privilege to have one of my old and dear friends. It's my late brother's best friend. His name is Terry G. Terry G, welcome to Silvertown. Boom. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be able to tell my story on this on this podcast. It really is. We got a lot yeah. of his, history, Terry. We go back for, man, teens, I guess, I think is what it is, right? Yeah, I think I was, we moved to Hervey Street, which is the same street we met on. I think I was 13 or 14 years old. I think you were 16. You were yeah. older than me and Mark. Yeah. And we did a lot of addiction events together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was kind of our forte. It was. It was. <laughs> Drink, fight, and that's probably about what it was. And chase girls, right? Drink, fight, and chase oh, yeah. girls. It was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, man. Boom. So you're going to share your recovery story with us. And why don't you go ahead, and I'll just step out of here a little bit. All right. So I was I was raised in Alaska. And during the time that I was in Alaska, I was just a kid. And we moved up there in 1968, which I was... Born in 64, and we left in 78. During that time, my dad drove truck pretty much constant, and my mom spent most of her time at the bar. And I always tell people, they ask, where were you from? I say, I was raised in the back of a Impala outside of a bar, waiting for my mom. That's kind of the way it was for us. I can remember waiting in the car outside the bar, and... I would sneak in the back door and start playing pool with all the old timers in there. And my mom would get ready to leave. And up there, you left your car running because it was 40 below. And she'd go out and get in the car and drive off. And then she'd realize I wasn't in the back seat. So she'd come back into the bar in a panic, wondering where her son was. And the bartender would say, and he's back there playing pool with the old boys. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd won some money by that time. And I'd just wave the 20s up in the air and I'd say, hey, buy her another round. I'm not done yet. <laughs> That's kind of how through most of my childhood started drinking at a young age and smoking pot like around nine or 10 years old. And it just kind of progressed from there. I didn't really know anybody in my life that didn't drink or use drugs. I was under the assumption that everybody in the world drank and used drugs because everybody in my family and everybody around me drank and used drugs. I just always believed that some people were better at it than others. And so they got to live in the mansion up on top of the hill. And I had to work better at being better <laughs> to get out of the trailer because I lived in a trailer. So my parents finally got a divorce. My dad got tired of my mom's drinking. And we came out of Alaska in 1978 when we moved to Boise, Idaho. And that was the first time I really experienced any part of the lower 48. Now, I was ready. I was like, yeah, this is party time. And I, I loved it. The weather was great. They didn't snow all the time. I really got into it. And they had really good marijuana. <laughs> I was really into that when I was young. So it just progressed and progressed. And uh, around that time, I was in a sophomore in high school. And I met Mark Biddle which was Wayne, Wayne Biddle's brother. 
and I met Wayne and John Goss and some other guys that we were just party animals. I finished two years of high school there and then we moved. I went to five different high schools. My dad traveled around driving truck and I followed him along. Everywhere I went, I got in trouble and I drank and I just, I could not stop the party. It just kept going and going. Of course, when I was a kid, it didn't matter. That was the way I lived. I went to Rancho High in North Las Vegas for a small, I think I only went to school there one day. It was pretty crazy. Anyway, we moved from there to Enterprise, Utah, with my graduating class with 17 people. And they didn't know how to handle me because I was dealing drugs and I got all the kids high. Pretty soon, the bishop's daughter had a problem with me, and then the other bishop's daughter had a problem with me, and they kicked me out of school. I didn't graduate from that school. Anyway, I got kicked out because I got busted with marijuana at the school. <laughs> so my, my drug use and my alcohol use was just, it was unchecked. I had no filter. There was no stopping at this point. After I got out of high school, I went back to Boise. I hooked back up with, with Mark, and I think Wayne had left by that time. I'm not sure. It's been a long time. Just so everybody knows, Wayne is me. <laughs> I got Drifter. Drifter. Sorry about that. Yeah, That's all good. That's all good. I know, I know Drifter as, as my brother Wayne. He's my brother, and that will never change. We've been through a lot together, and we have a lot of memories. We have some recovery now, which is awesome thing of our relationship. I guess to kind of put it all in a nutshell, Mark, Drifter's brother, when I got back to Boise after high, after high school, Mark had gotten hit by an ambulance or something on his bicycle. He was pretty beat up. I don't know. It's such a blur. I can't remember those times very well. Anyway, me and Mark got back together and in 1988, Mark took me to my very first Narcotics Anonymous meeting. I wasn't too sure about Narcotics Anonymous at that time. At first, I was kind of mad at Mark because I thought that he had ripped me off. And so I was ready to fight him. But when I went up to the door, and that was when Drifter's mom lived in the Alpine Apartments in Boise, Idaho. I went up to the door, and I was ready to confront this guy. He opened up the door. He was pretty beat up. He had just gotten hit by an ambulance <laughs> and his face was messed up. And it's, I don't know, he was just really messed up. Did he have one leg at that time too? Had no, he, he, had been, two, he still he had, had two, two legs. legs. Okay. Yeah. There's two parts to me and Mark's reunion. One of them was when he had both legs. This was in 1988. The other one is years later. But this one here, when I seen him, I was ready to go to fist with this guy. And I go, come on, let's talk. I said, I got, I got a little bag of weed and I just put it on the park here and get high. And he goes, I don't do that. I'm like, what? Are you feeling okay? Because that was not in our vocabulary. It wasn't in my vocabulary. And it used to never be in March either. So I was kind of surprised. He says, yeah, he says, I don't, I don't smoke pot or drink anymore. If you're sick or something. And I walked away. <laughs> Anyway, we kind of kept in touch, and he eventually took me to an NA meeting later that year. I actually got sober with Mark. My first sobriety day was 
May 20th, 1988. And I had to go to court because I had a lot of trouble with the law, always in trouble with the law. I can't remember a time when I didn't have a court date, a fine to pay, or some kind of obligation I had to do with the 80 county jail or court. So anyway, uh, Mark cooked me in my first NA meeting and I had to go to court because I'd, I'd gotten a DUI and I went in front of the judge and the, there was a small miracle that happened in the courtroom right there. Because I had gotten, I think I had 90 days sobriety before I went to court. And I told the judge at that point, I said, I've got sobriety now. I, I just want to try this. And she, and I think it was Judge Hamilton. She was like my hanging judge. <laughs> oh, I remember that judge very well. Yeah, she was, she was pretty tough, but she's seen, she's seen a glimmer of hope. And she said, I'll, tell, I'll give you a chance. And so I didn't go to prison. That was the, like the spiritual experience. And that kept me sober for five years. I was going to Narcotics Anonymous meetings. And there was a whole different avenue of life that I'd never experienced before. And I, and I was like, wow, this is really neat. I had a support system, but I also had this progressive disease. And it, it, it just kept going without, any, without me being able to keep it in check. There was no way I was going to stay sober for any length of time other than the five years. But during that time, this is a very important part of my story. But during that time, I, I met Lisa and she didn't really didn't want anything to do with me back then because I was kind of a, oh, it's probably a slut. That was, that was probably the best word for it. I couldn't commit to a relationship. I was in and out of relationships. Just, I was doing the 13th step. I don't know if anybody knows what that is, but that's where you kind of bypass all the 12 steps and you just start having affairs with newcomers. And that was my, that's what I did. And I created more harm that way. But at the time, we had so good. Anyway, during that time, I met Lisa and she really didn't want anything to do. So another friend of ours, uh, Mike Thomas, he was one of the guys that came in after me at that time. So there was, there was Mark, myself, and Mike. And then there was a, a handful of other guys that came into the, to any at that time. Guys that we went to school with at Mora years earlier. Anyway, all of us got sober around the same time. And Lisa, she stayed sober. And Mike died of leukemia. Mike and Lisa were going to be married. And Mike was one of my best friends. Mark ended up relapsing and went back out. And he left California. We didn't see him for a while. But anyway, Lisa became a good friend of mine. And when Mike died of leukemia, we kind of rebounded on each other, but I couldn't make that commitment. And so I, I moved on and she moved on. In 19, five years after I got sober, I was working. There's a lot of things that happen when you get sober. One is you have more money. Two, you get a better job. And three, you, you start living life and life becomes good. And at that time, life was really good. I, got, I was working at Hewlett Packard. I was, I had a trailer. I had financed a truck. I, life was good. And I had a roommate who was, he was, he was a normal guy. I guess you could say he, he could drink and still function. It didn't affect his life. I was still sober, but I was hanging out with this guy 
and he had a big influence on me. Next thing, I'm going to the bar with him after work, but I'm not drinking. I'm trying to stay cool, right? Eventually, I got a girlfriend who was a normal person as well. And when I say normal person, I'm saying somebody that doesn't have the disease of alcoholism or addiction, right? Because there is a difference. And I'll explain that later. But anyway, my girlfriend and myself went to a wedding reception. Her, her friend was getting married. And so we went to the wedding reception and there's champagne. Everybody drinking champagne. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, champagne? <laughs> That ain't nothing, man. That's that's for wimps. I can't have champagne, man. I drank the hard stuff. I was I was a cocaine addict, and I drank whiskey. Now, champagne ain't nothing to me. It's like Kool Aid. So I started drinking the champagne. Well, next thing you know, I'm getting 86 out of the wedding reception. I'm I'm stealing bottles of champagne and taking them out the back of the parking lot and chugging them down. And needless to say, I blacked out. I made a fool out of myself with the wedding reception, embarrassed my girlfriend, embarrassed everybody in there. And we ended up having to leave early. I, I don't remember because I'm a blackout drunk and that's what I do. So anyway, that was kind of the beginning of the end of that recovery. Eventually I discovered methamphetamines. I was at the bar in Boise and we were drinking derailers. I don't know if anybody remembers those, but they were a big, kind of like a, kind of like a bucket and they put straws in them and you would drink them with your friends. And anyway, I'd get really, really, really drunk. And I went in the bathroom and there was a guy in there who was chopping these lines out on the, on the back part of the toilet there. And uh, we were snorting these lines and I could drink more. I was like, man, this stuff works really good. It sobered me right up. And I decided this is, this is the answer to all of my problems. I hear this, this crystal meth. This is the answer. And I bought into that, and man, things spiraled very fast. In 1993, at the beginning of the year, I had, I had a house, a job, and a truck. I had a good reputation. And in a year's time, I had lost everything, became a meth dealer, and was sleeping in a van out by the truck stop with, with a pillow and a 9 millimeter and a bag of dope. Because I had, I had really made some friends with the wrong people and I ended up stealing from them and then I was on the run. And those friends were part of the cartel. Um, they were dealing methamphetamines to Boise at that time and I was right in the middle of it and I lost everything. This is where my memory really has a hard time because I did such a large amount of drugs during that time. But I do remember that at one point I had gotten in trouble, gotten busted for having paraphernalia. And I don't know if I had, at that time I hadn't progressed to using a needle, but I'd gotten back to smoking it. And I ended up being on the run, found myself in jail again. And I called my sister who lived in Gillette, Wyoming. I think I have a sip of coffee. That's good stuff. So anyway, my sister drove from Gillette, Wyoming and picked me up in Boise. And I went to Gillette. I kind of got off the dope for a while in Gillette. But my sister tended bar 
at, at Jake's Tavern in Gillette, Wyoming. Started working, installing carpet, but we were going to the bar every night. I mean, we would just drink, 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 drink. And there was probably, I think at that time, Gillette was probably about 50,000 people. It wasn't very big, but there was about 32 bars. And I got kicked out of every one of them because I was just a rowdy drunk. Man. And I always, I always ended up coming home with my face black and blue because I thought I was a good fighter. And I wasn't, not when I was that drunk. So anyway, my sister moved from Gillette to Bullhead City, Arizona. And me and another buddy started this little carpet business. Then we was buying carpet and installing it and then drinking and doing a little bit of dope here and there, but not so much because um, I, I realized that it kind of went downhill for me when I did dope. But I thought I could drink like a normal person, which, but I thought I did. Anyway, we went back to Maine and we lived in Liberty, Maine for one summer and I left and went back to Gillette and thought that I was going to start this carpet business. I drank myself out of the carpet and I went over the mountain to Warland, Wyoming, and then I discovered that methamphetamines in the oil field was the way to go. And so I started dealing dope to the oil rigs between Warland and Moorcroft all over the northern part of Wyoming in the oil field, I was slinging dope. I was making more money than, than most of the oil rig workers. I would show up on payday. They would buy my dope. We'd all get high and I'd leave with their paychecks. So when I finally left Gillette, I had to take a bus because I was broke, beat up, and homeless. And it was getting to be wintertime. And you don't want to be homeless in Wyoming during the winter. <laughs> it's pretty cold. So I called my sister again. Has always been my savior. She always gave me a couch or a garage. She always enabled me to move on with my my addiction and alcoholism. So she sent me a bus ticket, and I ended up in Bullhead City, Arizona. For a few months, it went really good. I didn't get into the dope. I just drank. I worked for Don Laughlin there at the Riverside Hotel Casino installing carpet. Had a pretty good gambling habit, and anyway. I got involved with dope again and things went downhill fast. At that point, I'd gotten into using the needle. And so I would, I would intravenously inject methamphetamines into my blood system. And you know, the old saying used to be, there's way too much blood in my dope system. And that's how I lived. That was my thing. There's, I needed to fix all the time. I was high. I probably, I wouldn't eat. I'd stay up for days just dealing, cooking dope. I probably weighed about 135 pounds, but I just thought it was all lean muscle. These were bones sticking out of my skin. I looked like Skeletor. Every, I used to tell everybody that I got so bad that when I turned sideways, I'd disappear because uh, I was just so skinny. Anyway, at that point, it got pretty bad. I got involved with some of the biker gangs out of Southern California that were kind of running the area around Bullhead City. So I started hanging out with bikers. That area is kind of famous for trafficking. It used to be. Not so much anymore, but it used to be. Let's see, that was 1998 or 99. I'm not even sure. Somewhere around in there. But anyway, it was a, it was a very high trafficking area. And I got involved in that. I got pretty bad. I was living at different trailers, slinging dope. 
And a friend, Steve McKinney from Idaho, a really good friend of mine, he had always wanted me to be the best man at his wedding. So, and, and this is the story of how I got from Bullhead City, strung out junkie, to back to Boise, strung out junkie. But uh, I was kind of living with my sister off and on. She caught me shooting dope out in, out in her tool shed. She kicked me out of the house. I had nowhere to go. I ended up kind of living at a couple different tweaker houses. And uh, Steve came down from Idaho uh, because he wanted me to be the best man at his wedding. And he called my sister and asked her where I was. And she said, Steve, he's not the same guy anymore. You won't even recognize him. He, he's not the same person. He goes, I don't care. I have faith in him. I'm coming to get him. So he drove from Boise down to Bullhead City, scooped me up out of a tweaker house, and took me back to Idaho. And I can barely remember the drive because I was just, I was sleeping the whole way. And I was very malnourished. I didn't have any food. I was coming off of a very very strong dope habit. Anyway, I lived in his house for a while, but his wife didn't want me around. They were trying to start a new life. And, but he put me up in a camper on his mom's property out off of Maple Grove. And I stayed there. And I eventually got hooked back up with drug dealers. Well, seven years before, when I left Idaho on the run, I still had all these court cases and warrants for my arrest and stuff that I didn't take care of when I left. And in my mind, I thought that seven years was a statute of limitation. So I'm thinking, yeah, I can come back to Idaho. I'll be okay. So I got hooked up with these people that were kind of enforcers. They weren't afraid of strong arming, uh, actually not afraid of probably killing people. Um, in fact, one of them showed up at the trailer because I was one of the suppliers and wanted me to go on a, a collection run. And I'm like, no, I can't. I got a wedding tomorrow. <laughs> I've got to make sure I try to get some sleep. I've been up for days. Anyway, that guy ended up going up on uh, Bogus Basin Road and killing this guy. And then, but that's a whole nother story. But I was really close to going with him on that little run. And I didn't realize it at the time that that's what was going on. But so anyway, to kind of get back to where I was, the one morning the police showed up at the property and there was another guy there and he's, he knocks on the door and says, Terry, you've got to get out. The cops are on the property. And I said, well, go talk to them. Don't let them come back to the trailer. And he just left. Next thing you know, uh, I get out of the trailer and I'm walking down the driveway and they they go, do you do you know where so-and-so and so-and-so are? And I said, no, they're, they're because we don't like their kind around here. And they're like, okay, can we see your ID? And I'm like, mm. and I had an Arizona driver's license. So I gave him my Arizona driver's license thinking everything was okay. And as they're looking at the driver's license, I can see kind of, they call it the rope team, the other vehicles pulling up and they're, they're kind of surrounding me. I can tell that something's going down and I'm the only one there. <laughs> Okay. They go, Mr. Garn, we've been looking for you for a while. And I said, oh, and yeah, we're going to have to hold you in on these warrants. And I'm like, oh, okay. And they're like, is there anything that you need out of that, that camp? 
And I said, no, let's go. <laughs> because if they'd, have, if they'd have went the 20 feet over to that camper, I probably would have got a manufacturing charge uh, and probably some other charges as well because it was full of stolen items. There was a lab going on in there. Yeah, it would have been. And I'm just like, nope, don't go look at it. Let's go. <laughs> Take me to jail. I'm happy to go. <laughs> and uh, I think at that point when I remember sitting in the back of that police car, I felt relief. And that's, that's a lot because I haven't felt any relief up to that point for a long time. I was always on the run. I was always looking over my shoulder. I was always trying to outrun the next thing. I was, I was, I always call it the chasing the BBDs, the bigger, better deal. There's a bigger, better deal. There's a bigger, better deal, bigger, better deal. At that point, I was probably, I would, I would use almost a quarter ounce of crystal meth a night. I could, I could shoot a teener a 16th in one sitting and just go back for more. My tolerance level was really high and I was a very sick individual. So at that point, sitting in that car, I'm thinking, oh, good. I'm going to get some sleep. I'm going to get some food. I get to hang out with my buddies at the county jail. And I ended up staying in jail for quite a while. I had to stay there till I went to all these court dates. I think that was in, that was May 9th. May 9th. No, June 9th. Because that was the day I was supposed to be at the wedding. That's right. I was supposed to be the best man at the wedding that day, and I ended up going to jail instead. And I didn't get out of jail until October, I think it was, and they let me out. And I got out of jail. I was way fat. I couldn't even hold my britches together. And I decided that I needed to find a place to go. And I remember that Drifter's mom lived in a trailer park. I can't remember the name of the trailer park. She lived there for a long time. And so I walked over there and I knocked on the door and there was my best friend, Mark. This time he was missing a leg. He, his wrist was messed up and his face looked like somebody pulverized him. And of course we were on the same plane. I go, I got about 60 bucks. And he goes, I got about a hundred bucks. And I said, okay, maybe we could roll that over. So Mark took all of his savings and we started slinging dope together. It didn't take us long to where we found ourselves in trouble again. He got an apartment, basement apartment. And from that time, I don't remember how long, I don't remember the time span, but at one point I was, I was being a soldier for my cartel buddies and I in my mind, I thought, okay, if I don't cook dope, I'll be okay. If I just be a casual user, that's, that's what I'll do. I'll be a casual user. And anybody's using, it's going to go downhill. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, I can control this. Well, I was up at a friend's house and I had these rules being a good dealer, right? Okay, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a deal after 10 p.m., right? I would stay where I was at at 10 p.m. and I wouldn't go sling any dope anymore. My best friend, Mark, called, and he's like, Terry, I really need some. I need some now. Can you come down here? And I'm like, Mark, I usually don't go anywhere after 10, but in your case, I will. So I grabbed a buddy of mine, and we got in my pickup, and we drove down there. And just as we left the house, I picked up some heat because they were watching the house. And I got pulled over, 
and I, uh, I had a, I don't know, I had some dope on me, and my buddy's like, "Hey, man, oh no, he had that's right. Okay, let me get the story straight. He had the dope on him, and he was already been busted twice or three times dope, and so in Idaho, three times you're done. You know what I mean? And and so he he goes." The cops pulled me over. They they took my driver's license. I had my, I was legitimately had insurance and a driver's license and the license plates actually went to my pickup. So I was, I was kind of legit right there. And so they took my driver's license down. They took his driver's license and went back to the car. While the cops were at the back car, at their car, my buddy goes, he goes, Terry, I can't go back to prison. I said, don't worry about it, man. Just, it looks like they're going to let me go. So just give me that, and I put it in my underwear, thinking I was really slick and sneaky. I was just stinky. I was sneaky. <laughs> anyway, they go, yeah, you're good to go, but your buddy's going to go have to come back with this. And, okay. So they took him and put him in the squad car, and a cop come back to give me back my driver's license and insurance and registration. And as he was shining a, a light in, he noticed in the back back seat that there was an empty knife sheet and that gave him probable cause to search me so he pulled me out of the truck and when he was patting me down he says is there anything sharp on you that poked me and I said no and but I didn't know that I had grabbed my me and my girlfriend at the time I had matching leather jacket and I grabbed her jacket instead of mine and in the inside pocket of that jacket was a fixed kit that we had in an eyeglass case. So you could put your syringe and your spoon and all that stuff in there. Anyway, he found that. And he's like, oh, he says, you're going to the joint right now. And he hauled me up, rolled me up right there, took me into the booking station. I'm going to jail, this time for possession of paraphernalia. While they were booking me, uh, I knew all the police officers in the county jail. They knew me by name. And they've been trying to capture me on a larger charge for years. And this time they were just happy as shit. They're like, yeah, we finally got you and all this stuff. We're going to search you. And, and the old guy that was pressing me down, I knew him. He's like, geez, Terry, when are you going to learn? So I'm like, I don't know. I, this is just the way it goes for me. It's my luck or whatever. He goes, is there anything sharp on you? And at that, I had a flannel shirt on. And in my shirt pocket was a brand new syringe that I hadn't used. Right. And I forgot about it. I'd shot so much dope, I'd leave him behind my ear and not even know it. Anyway, he he found that syringe and he's like, damn it, Jerry, you could have stabbed me. I could have got AIDS from you junkies, you piece of shit. And he starts cussing and he goes, George Strip searching you. And he pushes me into a holding cell and I'm starting to, I'm taking off my clothes. Five cops all staring at me. And and, and I knew as soon as I pulled down my underwear, that bag was going to fall down. And sure enough, man. I pulled down my underwear, pumped right on the floor. was a big old bag of dope. <laughs> and they're like, ah, we finally got you here. You're going to join now. We're fucking you hard. Oh, man, it sucked. It really sucked, man. And I knew. And I was like 30. I was in my mid to late 30s. Picked up my first felony. And uh, so, yeah, I went into jail. And I was working at a car lot at the time. I used my paycheck to get myself out of jail. And at that time, I still had a I still had a good connection with my border brothers. 
because I had rectified my problem from years before by working for him. Anyway, I went to jail. I got out. And from the time that I did my, my crime to the time of my sentencing, I had about three or four months. And I figured I better money up. And the only way I knew how to money up at that time was to sell more dope. In Boise, what, what all the dealers would do is they would have a yard sale. And during these yard sales was just a big move of product. It wasn't really a yard sale. We just called it that. Yeah, Terry's having a yard sale or so-and-so's having a yard sale. And that's where they just roll off a bunch of dope and then they sell it so they can get money. And that's what I did. I figured if I could just go in front of the judge in street clothes, I would have, I would, they would be less strict on me, right? Because when you go to court in your jail uniform, they know that you're already locked up. And they're like, hey, this guy's already in there. Let's keep him in there. But if you're out and been in and out of the jails and court system so well, I knew how to play the game. And, I, and in my mind, I thought, I can stay on the streets. I go in front of the, George, the judge in nice clothes and have a job. They'll be less apt to throw me, throw me in the prison. I might get a lesser sentence. Or they'll put me on probation. This is my first felony. All these things are going through my, my addict mind, how to manipulate the system and get away with it. Anyway, I, I had forgot that I was supposed to meet my dad at the house, at the trailer I was having the yard show. So I ran over to the payphone and I'm on the payphone and I'm calling up more of my buddies and stuff. And I'm, I'm saying, hey man, I got this going on. I got this thing going on. I need to get rid of this and that. And we always use code words. I got a bunch of lawnmowers to sell or whatever. And I was looking out the intersection and there goes my dad headed to my house. I'm like, holy crap, I better get there before my dad gets there because there's a bunch of, <laughs> there's a bunch of rough people and gangsters and dope dealers all hanging out at my trailer right now. So I dumped in my truck and I tried to outrun him to the house so I could cut him off and then we could go do something and they could finish doing what they're doing at the trailer. And I could just kind of intercept my dad. I went down one road, he went down the other road, and I was, I was trying to cut him off. I didn't pay attention to the unmarked cars that were parked along the block. So I pull in the driveway just right behind Dad. I get out of the car. I say, hey, Dad, how are you doing? Just as I'm walking up to him, I can see the rope team showing up again, right? They're going to haul Terry to jail because I've got warrants for my arrest that I didn't know about because I didn't appear for a misdemeanor charge after I got out of jail. So anyway, because I couldn't keep track of stuff because my mind was high. Anyway, I'm walking up to my dad and he's looking behind me and you can see the squad car pull in behind my truck and then another one on the street and they're all, they're all kind of converging on me. And uh, my dad looks over my shoulder and he says, these these for you. And I said, yeah, they're for me, dad. And I said, I'm going to be going to jail. And I said, come visit me. So I turn around and they're like, okay, Mr. Garen, we got warrants for your arrest. Is there anything that you need to get out of that trailer? I said, no, let's go. Because I was in the same situation one year later, just in a different spot. I, I ended up going to jail and they convicted me for possession with intent to deliver because uh, it was uh, the quantity that I had wasn't a huge quantity, thank God, because if they had caught me an hour or so before, I probably would have got another trafficking charge. 
But in, in this circumstance, it was just a small amount, but it was broke up into smaller amounts, which meant that I was delivering. So I went to jail, prison this time. I went to court. They gave me two fixed, three undetermined, and they put me on what they call a writer program. And in Idaho, that's the writer program is where the judge retains jurisdiction over your charge. And he doesn't release you to the state prison. He keeps jurisdiction over you because he thinks that uh, there might be hope for you. So the writer program is where they send you to northern Idaho, and there's a prison facility on top of a mountain up there. It's kind of like a boot camp. You have to march cadence. You have to stand in formation. And during that time, you're up there for six months. During that time, they program. They give you education. I got my, I think I got computer. I learned computers. I, they just try to reprogram. And I went to a halfway house. My dad was there this time when I got out. Made a big difference. There was nobody there. And it's, it's a lonely feeling to have to go through that and have nobody there when you get picked up. It's sad. So but this time my dad was there and we went to a halfway house and I was living at the halfway house. And the halfway house was not a good deal for me because everybody in there was using. And it was just a matter of time before I was taking my turn in the bathroom like everybody else. And I got connected up and I relapsed. I went back to using from March 25th to September 22nd. There was six months there, really rock bottom behavior. I... I got back together with Mark, and me and Mark were doing our thing, clinging dope. He was living at the Iden Hall on the fifth floor. And I, would, I was working construction. I would get my paycheck. I would go over to, I have a sister, Drifter and Mark, and I'd go over to her house and score. And I dropped my whole paycheck. And this is a kind of a scary story. I was used to shooting a large amount of methamphetamine. And when I went over to her house, she didn't have the same amount that I usually get. And she sold me half of this cocaine. And it was really strong cocaine. I do not think it was cut with anything. It was pretty pure. And I put the same amount in the spoon that I would put normally methamphetamine. And Mark had gone on a powwow. So I had his apartment to myself and I'm like, all right, I'm going to stay high all weekend and just be high. Another sip of coffee. But anyway, when I injected that, I remember everything going dark. I mean, kind of like a, kind of like a curtain just being closed around your eyes and face. And then it just went dark. And I woke up maybe eight hours later, and I still had the syringe hanging in my arm. And blood was trickling down my arm. And I was like, what the heck just happened? And I don't know how I didn't die from that, but somebody upstairs must have been looking over. But that was a terrible experience. And I still, I still didn't think I was bad enough. Anyway, when I got out the prison, I had to go to these meetings. They made me go to these meetings. I had to get my little green card signed. And I'd only go 
to the meetings long enough to get my green card signed, and then I would go get high. One time, I'm walking into the meeting, and I was, and I was looking at this, this girl, this lady, and she's walking, I'm walking behind her, and it's all I could think about was her body. I'm thinking, man, I could use some of that right now. I just got out of prison. And she had these two little boys there with her. And they were all walking the same direction I was. I was just behind them. And when she turned to talk to one of the little boys, I noticed it was Lisa. And I'm like, Lisa. And she's like, Gary. And we turned and faced each other. And it was like, it was like slow motion running. And we gave each other a big hug. And it was, it was really special. It was, it was at that point in my life, I didn't know anybody that wasn't trying to ruin it, especially me. Uh, and here was this beam of light. So we started doing small talk and we went to the meeting and Lisa had stayed sober from 1988 on. And I had relapsed in 94. So I, I didn't see her for a long time. I think at one point when I was in Wyoming and my mom died, I went back to Boise for my mom's funeral and I, I bumped into her, but it was brief. It, it wasn't, it wasn't like this was the story and I was at rock bottom and we went to the meeting, we got out of the meeting. And so we're having kind of small talk after the meeting. And about that time, I felt a tug on the bottom of my shirt, right? And I looked down and it's one of her sons. His name is James. And he, at that time, he was about five years old. And he looks up and he's tugging on my shirt and he goes, hey, hey, will, will, you, will you be our daddy? Because we need a daddy and our mom needs a husband. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. Dude, I wasn't thinking about that right then. <laughs> I had other things on my mind. And so there's kind of got awkward between me and Lisa at that point. And so we're like, yeah, we're going to, but maybe we should get together and have coffee. And about that time, the other little boy that was on the other side of me tugs on my arm and he says, hey, we have a coffee maker at our house. Why don't you come over and have coffee? So the two boys kind of eliminated our excuses. And uh, I ended up going over there and having coffee and rekindling a relationship. That was a godsend, put it that way. It, it was definitely of a higher power. Because Stay this deep. was the Lisa from 1988 that her boyfriend had died from leukemia and you guys had gotten together. This was that Lisa, right? Yes, yes. While we were separated or away from each other, she had remarried and had three boys from that previous marriage. And her Divorce was final that day. That day, her divorce from the from the father of the boys was final on that day. But the day of the meeting where you guys ran into each other again. Yes. Yes. This is the Lisa from your past. And I, I know she's been important to you for all these years too. At that point, I was going to as going to as many meetings as 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 I could to get my green card signed. But that reunion was uh, pretty big in the recovery that I have now. So at that point, that was March of 2003, around March, April, May. At one point, they sold the halfway house I was living in, and I ended up moving in with Lisa and the boys. I was still struggling. I would, I would get a paycheck, and I'd disappear from her, and I'd go to Mark's, or I'd go to somewhere else, at one point, though, I had really tried to buckle down. I think I had 
a couple weeks of sobriety. I was going to meetings and I was painting houses with a guy that was in the in in the AA program. And his criteria for working for him was you had to go to a morning meeting, you had to go to a noon meeting, and you had to go to a 5.30 meeting. And so those two weeks, I was sober. But one thing I did not do when I got out was at some point, I quit checking in with my PO. So the probation office down there, they decided that I'd absconded. And so when they, they put out an agent warrant for you, when you abscond, an agent's warrant means that they're going to bring back all that time that they were holding over your head and you're going to go back to prison and you're not going to get a chance to get out. You're just going to go finish your time. One morning I was on my way to work and you've been running dope and dealing like I have for so long, kind of get this idea or feeling of where the unmarked cops are. You just, I don't know. It's like a, like a sixth sense or seventh sense or something. Anyway, I could tell that there was an unmarked car going around the block as I walked out of the house and got my pickup. So I turned around, I turned my pickup around, and I went the other direction. There was another one at the end of the block. And then I turned left, and then there was a squad car, and he pulls me out. He comes up to the car and he goes, Oh, hey, Terry, how are you? <laughs> I'm like, I didn't know my name, <laughs> but he knew my name. And he's like, you know why I'm here? And I said, not really. I said, I've been, I've been clean for two weeks, man. I'm really trying. And he goes, he goes, no, you have a warrant for your arrest. because You didn't check in with your PO. Um, shit. <laughs> I just did that too. I did. Oh, shit. But he goes, I'm going to have to take him. And I said, okay. And he goes, can I search your truck? I thought for a minute. And I, man, I'd been clean for two weeks. I said, yeah, search away. There ain't nothing in there. Search away. And that was the first time I didn't have to worry about finding anything in my pickup. Well, anyway, they didn't find anything. And they took me to jail. And I called Lisa. And Lisa's, and I'm hard timing it, man. I, I'm in jail. I'm hard timing it. I ruined another life. I, and, and in my mind, I'm thinking, thank God I didn't get really involved with that family because I won't hurt them as bad. Because everybody I came in contact with, I ended up breaking their heart. So let's real quick explain to the people listening what hard timing is. It's it's a mental thing. Yes, it is. It's a mental thing. Hard timing is when you're taken away, you're locked up, and you're away from the people that you love, and you can't stop thinking about what you did. And that's that's doing hard time. That means that your mental state is still on the outs with and on the outs means that you're still your mental state is always thinking about those people that you love but you can't be with them that's hard time so i was hard timing it so i'm sitting in jail and there was a guy in there he had a he had a big book and he would say he would come up he, he he's like he knew what i was going through he's like yeah you're hard time I said, yeah yep i'm hard he goes, this seems to help me. And he pointed out a part in the book. And he says, we'll do a morning meditation. Morning meditation? What the heck? And I used to do morning rituals. That's what I was used to. And he said, he, he, we knew some of the same people from the meetings on the outside. So in the mornings, he would, get, he would get up. He would do his morning meditation. He would start the coffee. And this is in a, in a, a dorm of 60-some-odd men 
in a pod, right? And and Ada County Jail has these pods. It's shaped like an octagon type deal with the the cops in the middle that they can keep an eye on everybody. So anyway, he would get up and he would go start the coffee and he'd do his morning meditation. Then he'd come up to my bunk and he would hand me the big book and he would, and then I would go down and I would read out of the big book. I did not know it, but Lisa on the out, because she had been sober all that time I had been out running around, she had friends that were able to help me. She called a friend of mine, his name is Butch Shaw. And this guy is a key factor in my recovery. Years before, when Mark took me to my NA meeting, I met Butch. And at that time, Butch had no car. He was just starting his recovery like I was. And I can remember I had a pickup and I would give this man rides to meetings around town. While I was gone, running around, Butch stayed sober. And he became a drug and alcohol counselor for probation and parole of the state of Idaho. And so Lisa contacted him. And I'm in jail, hard time in it. And I get a call from the pod, the cops, right? And they're like, Mr. Dan, come down to book it. And I'm like, oh, they found another charge. Because that's how you get charged with more stuff. And you're sitting in jail and they call your name down and they rebook you on another charge. And I'm thinking, oh, great. I'm going to get, I'm going to get another charge. What did they find now? I'm just like, I gave up hope. I'm like, I'm done. I'm just going to go do my time. I'm going to die with a needle in my arm. That's the way my life is. And that's where my mentality was at that point. So I go down to booking and I walk up to the counter and I'm thinking they're going to fingerprint me on another charge. And they're like, nope, go sit in that holding cell. I go over in the holding cell and I'm sitting there and my head's all down and I'm there's a loud knock on the door and this guy pops his head up into the little window on the, on the door and he's looking at me and he's he's he takes his two fingers and he like he pointing at his eyes and then pointing at me pointing at like he's watching me right and I'm like what the heck is this guy pissed off at me so I'm thinking he's a lawyer or something because he looks like a lawyer anyway a couple minutes later the guard comes up, lets me out, and says, go down to that office down there. And I go down to that office. I'm sitting. I go in there, and I sit down at the table. And this lawyer guy comes walking in. He sits down at the table across from me, and he leans over. And he says, and he didn't say anything, but I look at him, and I'm looking at him. And I, he looks familiar, and he had glasses on. His hair's all cut really clean. And I go, Butch? He goes, yeah, but it's me. And, and I didn't recognize him. And he goes, I go, what are you doing? He goes, I'm a, I goes, I'm a police officer, man. They gave me a gun. I said, are you kidding me? Anyway, he was able to get me into a program. And this was the same butch that I was given rides to 10 years earlier. And this time he's there to help. Where he goes, he goes, I understand. He, he, he helped me tremendously. He got me into a program, and at that time, there's the government, the federal government was throwing money at the meth epidemic. So there was federal funding coming down from the federal, federal level to the state level to take care of this meth problem. And there was a, a, a place called the Boise Meth Clinic, and he said that he could get me in there 
but I had to get out of jail first. And I said, I don't think I'm getting out of jail. He goes, I can make it happen for you. So Lisa put up her house, came down and got me out of jail. Actually, I had to stay in jail for another, I think, 30 days or something, somewhere around in there. And during that time, I, I gathered some hope. And this morning meditation thing that the, me and this other inmate was doing was helping me. And I called Butch on the phone and he said, well, I can't be your sponsor because you're under parole. You're on parole. He says, but I, these people at the Boise Mess, we just got to get you out. So it took a while. It took a few weeks for Lisa to get the money together. And during that time, uh, she would come visit me with the kids. And so I traded, um, I traded a couple lunches and a couple peanut butter sandwiches to one of my, my, my border brother friends. And he made a rose out of toilet paper. And then he colored it with, I think he, I don't know, there's some really talented guys in the joint. I mean, that's all I can say. Some of these guys are very, very good. I proposed to Lisa from jail. Use that rose. And I said, when I get out of here, I'm going to make an honest woman out of you. I had lots of talk. <laughs> so anyway, I, I got out of jail. And, and uh, that was the, the beginning. Uh, the Boise Meth Clinic was an outpatient treatment center. And it was really strict. The way it worked for me was if I missed one session, I was going back to prison. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. They, they had a direct line to, to Butch. And if I screwed up in any way, Butch was having the rope team show up at my door and I was going back. I had to be there Monday through Friday from 5.30 to 8 every night. But that, that was good. They dealt specifically with meth people, the people that were coming off meth. They fixed my teeth. I don't have any molars because the methamphetamines just ate my teeth away. I got sober in time to save my grill. I have 17 teeth left, and I take care of them religiously. I do not mess with my teeth anymore. <laughs> I want to keep what I have. So that first year was pretty tough. I was going to the Boise Meth Clinic and that treatment outpatient treatment program. I was going to meetings, and I can remember going into my very first meeting with my counselor at the Boise Meth Clinic. His name was Doug, Doug Starr. He's still sober today. I think he's retired now. And he was a three-time loser man. He was in and out of joint. And here he is um, helping people. And I was sitting in front of his desk and he goes, why are you here? And I said, I just want a chance. That's all. I just want a chance. I just want a chance at life. On, on his desk, on one side, was what they called, they have a model of recovery. And it, it was called the, the Matrix Program. And it was, it was a program dealt for dealing with meth people that, that they're trying to get off of meth. And it works. I mean, out of that program, I think I, I'm one of the ones that actually made it. But anyway, there was a stack of books on the left side of his desk. And on the right side of his desk was the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book. They call it the Big Book. You know what I'm doing. It's the blue book that has the Alcoholics Anonymous program of recovery in the steps. He goes, well, while you're here for the year, because it's a year-long program, while you're here, this is what you have, this is what we have to teach you. He goes, but this, and he put his right hand on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
and he slid it, slid it across his desk towards me, and he said, but this is what works. And I'm like, hmm? He says, open it up. And inside the big book, inside the book was a list of meetings and a meeting schedule. He says, when you're not here, you need to be at one of those meetings. And I believed him. I believed that what he said was true. And so I was at a point in my life where I could see this, this, this life in front of me with Lisa and, and the boys, but I knew for a fact that it was unattainable in my mind. I need to say this one other thing too, because it's very important. When I got out of jail, before I went and met with my counselor, I met with these guys, two guys from Alcoholics Anonymous, and they had been there on the front lines. These guys are, to this day, they are still saving guys that are homeless living on the river um, in Boise, on the Boise River, because there's a whole group of homeless people live on the Boise River. And he's, they're still helping these guys. So back when Lisa bailed me out of jail, basically, after I proposed to her, I made a meeting with these two guys from Alcoholics Anonymous. And we were sitting down at a restaurant and they were, they were kind of 12 stepping. And, and I thought, I thought I had this thing under control. I'm like, they're like, I'm like, I got this thing and I got 30 days. I'm, I'm good. I've got 30 days. And they're like, no, you think you're good now, but you're eventually going to hurt that hurt that woman you're going to hurt the people you love and you're going to rip the heart out of those little boys and you're going to go back to prison i'm like what how can that be i'm i've got 30 days sober right and they they told me the truth they were right in a matter of time i would have probably just hurt lisa and and ripped the heart out of those little boys anyway they they, they helped me see the hopelessness of my deeds it took another recovering alcoholic, another person in recovery to show me the hopelessness of my disease. Because my whole life, I minimized every problem I had. And I'm not the type of person that can learn from my mistakes. If, if I could learn from my mistakes, it would have only taken one trip to jail. And I just said, this ain't working for me. That's not the kind, kind of person I am. I, I don't have the ability to just change my behavior. I have to have some kind of an intervention. And, that, and at that point, those two guys, they outlined a program of recovery out of the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. And I was so desperate at that point not to go back to what I was doing that I asked them. I said, what do I have to do? And I think that was probably one of the hardest things I had to do was to ask them uh, what I needed to do because I always thought that I could think my way into better living. I always thought that I could, I could use my brain to change my circumstances. And for me, that's not what, the way it works. I have to actually learn how to live through a, a, some other kind of intervention program. I, I can't just, well, I'm not going to do it today. And, uh, but those guys were my first, there was two of them. They were my first two sponsors in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they took me through the 12 steps. And I was so desperate at that point right there 
Yeah, if they would have said that, let's say, let's put it this way. Let's say I ask, okay, what's the first step? And they said, you got to go stand out there on the street corner and you got to stand on one leg and flop your arms and balk like a chicken. I would have said, okay, because it didn't matter what they told me to do. I would have done it because I was so desperate. That desperation brought about the willingness for me to do anything to get clean and sober. And at that point, they made a promise to me. They said, I promise you that you do this, you do these steps the way we say to do it. Um, you won't have to drink or use again, or even if you want to. And I thought, that's a pretty bold statement because right then at that moment in time, every cell in my body went to get high. And there was nothing they could do about it. But I knew that I wanted to get high. So I clung on to that promise. I, I hang on to that promise. And they said, protect your recovery like it's a candle in the wind. You need to cover that candle. That's your sobriety date. You you wrap that candle with whatever program you can grab. And at that time, it was Alcoholics Anonymous. And so they outlined this program of recovery through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, and they, they did exercise. I go, what do I got to do first? And they said, okay, first you just got to read the first 164 page. So I read the first 164 pages. And I was desperate enough. I called them up. I said, okay, I'm done. What do I do next? They said, we're going to get you on the first step. But that's the way I went through the steps. It was just desperation after desperation after desperation. And that first year, it was tough. I was going through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to go through this very, very strict outpatient treatment program. And that was the beginning. So when, when I started this thing, I didn't think I would ever get to where I'm at. Here I am 20 years later, and I have a life that I never dreamt, that I never thought would be possible. I got to have a sip of coffee. So yeah, man, let's talk about that life because you ended up marrying Lisa and raising these kids. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to go back to kind of the step work because th that is a part of what, when I go and I share at these, I still go to meetings. I, I don't go to as many as I did before, but life is really giving me a plateful of blessings. And, but when I go to a meeting, I still share about those steps and I still share about those first days because that is what keeps me sober. I got to remember where I came from. I got to remember my last drunk. And, and I remember it to this day. I was, I was at Mark's apartment in Boise, Idaho. This is, this is a miracle. And me and Mark had just spent all of my money and all of his money on a huge pile of meth. I mean, just a ton of wine, right? I don't know how much. There was a lot. And bottles of whiskey. And me and Mark, we were set in to just let her rip, right? And I did a big old blast, and I couldn't get as high as I wanted to. I drank a ton of whiskey and I couldn't get drunk. I could not get to the level I wanted to get. Lisa had just kicked me out 
this was my last drop. Lisa had just kicked me out of the house because she caught me shooting dope. She found my fix kit. She kicked me out. So, I, of course, I went over to Mark's house. And I had a bundle of money. And he had a bundle of money. And we sat down. And Mark got drunk and high immediately. I could not reach that level. And I shot a lot of dope that night. I was so depressed and sad that I figured, you know what? I can't go on breaking people's hearts. So I, I gone out in the hallway. I went down to the end of the hall and I jimmied the, I got all the way to the top floor, went down the end of the hall and I jimmied the door open to get on the roof of the building. And I was on the roof of the building. And there's about a three or four foot ledge that you have to climb up on before you get to the edge of the building. And I climbed up on that edge of the building and I, I dialed Lisa's number. And I thought, if she takes me back, I will step backwards. If she says, F you, I will step forward and therefore fall onto the street below. And it was windy. I dialed the number and she goes, what do you want? want? <laughs> I thought, this ain't going to turn out good. And the only thing I could think of, can I at least come home and get my Bible? And she said, yeah. yeah. And she hung up and she still had the landline. Clear. Or no. I don't know. Anyway, she hung up on me. And I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of hope. So I stepped backwards instead of forwards. That was my jumping off. Because you, you were ready to kill yourself that day. Oh, yeah. I was ready to do a nosedive. I, I couldn't live the way I was living. And I couldn't live the other life either. And, and like I said before, I could see this life ahead of me. I can see it of recovery with Lisa and the boys, but I, I couldn't attain it. And in my mind, I, I broke her heart again, and I was, I was done hurting people. So I was going to jump off the edge of this building. And I went over. I snuck over to her house because I had picked up heat. I couldn't drive. The cops were looking at my truck. They were watching the apartment. And so I went over to her. I walked across town to her house. And she was so upset with me that she wouldn't even let me step foot on the property. She threw the Bible at me. Here, yeah. take it. <laughs> and I kind of caught it and fumbled it. It fell on the ground. And I picked it up. And I'm full of tears. And I walked off. But that moment doesn't escape me. I remember that. I remember that hopelessness. I remember that desperation. I remember that point. And that's what keeps me going to this day. Knowing that without some kind of recovery, without some kind of uh, program of something. And, and I use Alcoholics Anonymous, but without something, I will just continue to hurt the people I love over and over and over again. That's my first step. And I discovered that by going through these exercises that these guys put me through in the, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and in my mind, I thought, I'm different. I, I'm different. I, I would read the big book and I'm like, I don't relate to this guy, Bill. This guy, he's a stockbroker. You know what I mean? I never broke any stocks. <laughs> I don't know the first thing about that. I, would, I was looking for the differences. I couldn't see any similarities in what the big book was telling me or what I was reading out of the big book. I couldn't see that. But when I got to that moment of desperation, when I got hopeless and I got willing, I started to notice a lot of things in that book that was similar to me. I am an alcoholic. 
of the hopeless variety. I am beyond human aid. There's nobody that can help me, not even me. Uh, I had to find a higher power which would help me solve my problems. And I found it through the 12 Steps of Cults. Right? So when they outlined that program, they said, open up the book. And they said, I want you to go through the first 164 pages and underline in the red ink everywhere where you see the hopelessness of your disease. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what that's going to do because I got to go to these meetings and stuff. What that's going to do? And they said, just do it. And so I did it without question. And I underlined, and I found myself underlining parts of the book that didn't make any sense to anybody else. Like, I would underline the first part of the word method because it said meth. Okay. I underlined the word point because that's what I called my syringes. They were points. I underlined the word measure because I would dealt dope and I measured stuff out. And, and so I did find my first step in that book. It helped. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. I'm also an addict. The difference between an alcoholic and an addict Anybody in the world, anybody can become addicted because of the most, because of the powerfulness of the drug. I can take a, a normal, normal, I guess a lawyer or a doctor who's never, never known about, maybe somebody that's been isolated so long and don't know anything about addiction. I can shoot them up with some heroin or some fentanyl or meth, and they're going to be instantly addicted because of the powerfulness of the drug. But not everybody is alcoholic. Alcoholics, only an alcoholic would think that they'd have to hit a lower bottom in order to be an alcoholic. That's alcoholic thinking. That's the way I thought. It's not bad enough yet. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, I only got two DUIs. Maybe I need to get five. Hey. How many do you have? Memory, if I remember right, I think I have about 11. Uh, just so you know, <laughs> Terry's been around the block. Right. The first five or six of them was in, I probably hadn't even reached the age 22 yet. Drinking age was 19. By the time I turned 20, I had three. When I turned 21, I think I was, I was going to, I went and hired a lawyer to fight off five DUIs or something. And I ended up getting two more after that. After I hired the lawyer. Yeah. So, yeah, I had. You no are, lawyer. you were the hopeless variety. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt about that. But now, I mean, there's so much. I've raised these boys. I've got one boy left at home, David. And he is, he's all my, all the boys, me and Lisa, Lisa and I uh, have been able to put together a life uh, through this program and through recovery that is way beyond anything I ever thought I'd ever have. I never thought I'd be a homeowner. I never thought I'd have a Harley Davidson. These things are blessings. My, my wife had brain surgery in 2017, and she got, a, she got a disability, right? And so she applied for disability for three years prior. And when she finally got her disability check, she bought me a Harley Davidson. And I'm like, really? And she said, you just stay sober. <laughs> so that's, that's been has been wonderful. Uh, I can't imagine a life. I don't know it. I don't know how I got from where I'm at to now, other than just getting my ass to meetings. 
seems like staying involved in, in a recovery process, um, getting involved in service work, carrying a message to another alcoholic. I still have a sponsor. I call him once a week. Last year, he took me fishing on the ocean. And, I mean, and this, this man, he's, he's a very wealthy guy, but you would never know it. He, he just, he wears regular clothes like you and I. He was able to pay to go up there on his boat and go fishing in the ocean and talk about recovery. I never thought that's where I would end up. So this year in June, he, we were on the boat and we're talking about recovery. We're talking and he's got sponsees on the boat with us. And we're talking about our blessings and what recovery has done and how we can carry the message. We always talk about how we can carry a message, how we can carry a message to the next dive. Cause that's, that's how this thing moves on. Like what you're doing, what drifters doing by carrying a message through sober town, right? It, that's a blessing that, that is a, a message that can reverberate through alcoholics and addicts who need help. So we're sitting on the boat and he goes, he goes next year. He goes, he goes, I want all of you, all of me here right now. He goes, no, all of you. Said, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, I want all of the family. That's a big order because all three of the boys, all the three older boys, all have kids now, and they all have. Uh, like Philip, he's the oldest. He's thirty something now, and he's married to Shelby, and he has Oakley and Kim. Oakley just started school this year. John and John is the next boy down. He's married to Taylor, and he has two girls, too. And then James, he's the youngest of the three. He's the one that tugged on my shirt first to be his daddy. He has a little girl and a newborn baby boy. And then there's David, my youngest boy. He's, he, he came along after me and Lisa were married. And there's nine years between him and the, and the other boy. But he's my only biological son. But these all all four of them, they're my kids. There's there's no doubt in my mind. And they call me dad. And that's that's amazing for a junkie alcoholic like me to be a dad, to be a homeowner, to be employable. I've got a decent job. I mean, a really good job, actually. And it, it's amazing. A guy can come from the streets and and be able to be a productive member of society. That's a miracle within itself. So next year. He invited my whole family up there, and that's going to be our family reunion. Is up in the peninsula of Washington, out on the, the Macaw Reservation, fishing for salmon. I mean, can you believe that? That's crazy. Boom. That is amazing. And I've seen pictures of the area that you showed me, and it's beautiful, man. Beautiful. Yeah. And that's another thing, too, is they have, their, they have a reco recovery up there. What is it called? Anyway, it's for the, it's for the natives and, and they have a meeting there where they, they got a big eagle feather. I mean, this thing's probably, I don't know, 12, 13 inches long. And, and that feather passes around the table and everybody gets to share. It's really cool, man. It's one of the neatest meetings I've ever been to, but that, that is the camaraderie that, that I need. I've got to have that or else I'm left alone when I'm alone. I'm, I'm up in my head. I'm, I'm it's not good <laughs> Put it that way. When I'm, when I'm up in my head, I'm in, I'm in there with a crazy man. <laughs> Jerry, you've really inspired me 
as we both know, I didn't get sober through the 12 steps, although I've been involved with them through most of my life. Beings that our mom has like 40 years of 12 step in recovery, right? But I want to bring you on to Sobertown more to be talking about the steps so that people can see there's a really cool side to working the steps. And there is a ray of hope for people to get out of those trenches. I mean, look at you. You were hopeless. You felt hopeless. Oh, yeah. Ready to jump off a building, Terry. And you've turned your life around and you became an amazing father, husband, grandfather, and everything. And I get to see the pictures of you with this family unit. And you and Lisa have just done an amazing job. And also, Lisa told her recovery story on Sobertown. I think it's episode 189, if you want to hear her story. But you guys have just done an amazing job getting sober and then helping those coming behind you, man. And just so everybody knows, my brother, he's dead now. He died in his addiction, almost just down the street from my mom in a detox center. But man, growing up, Terry, we, we lit it up. You, Mark, and I, we used to get drunk and fight. That's what we did. Terry, I want to thank you for coming here and sharing your story with us. I want to get together and do some more with you soon. And thank you, everybody, for listening to SilvertownPodcast.com. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Boom.